All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the fuck's the bulls? What the fuck is Shuganas? Oh, man. How are you, my friends? How are you? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast. Uh, you, you've summoned me. You've summoned me into your head. I am here. Though heavy-hearted I am, I am okay. And, you know, I, I don't even know what to say. I, I don't know what to say to, to, to thank you people for reaching out. You know, I choose to do what I do. I choose to, to make my life my, my sole form of expression, obviously my thoughts, but my life. And there's a vulnerability to that that's a, it's a little disconcerting. And, and it's scary. It's scary. I mean, I could just be funny, maybe. Maybe I could just do that. I don't know. It, it's just scary, and I and I put some stuff out there in the last few weeks, and and the emails that y- you all have uh, sent me have been uh, just beautiful, and uh, I feel uh, I feel supported, I feel loved, I feel understood, and and I feel um, I don't know. I'm I'm humbled by it all. I, I don't know how else to say it. I love you guys and gals, and uh, you know all of you, uh, even the ones that that judge me harshly. I'm I'm trying I'm trying to become a, an open-hearted, high-roaded person. I'll tell you something about the high road, boy, man. It's not you, you know it, it it's a good idea. I think it's the way to go as best you can, but it's not as satisfying as the low road. The low road is a lot more fun. It's a lot dirtier. The high road is difficult. There's there's no road rage on the high road. It's not allowed. Uh, the rest stops are clean. And in and actually annoying, annoying. It almost seems inhuman. The high road, and I and I think that's you know why it's the high road because it's something that you can only aspire to. And God knows when I loop around on the uh, on the business loop on the high road, and I see that exit to anger, I see that exit to self pity, I see that exit to self righteousness, I see that exit. It's it's interesting. All the seven deadly sins uh, have exits right off of the high road, which only makes sense. Jealousy, guy. I, I feel like getting off, man. Yeah, just you know, just for a little while. I just want to get out and take a hate breather. Want to get out and take a a, a a resentment nap. Can I get off the high road? Absolutely, I will, and I and I, and I do. Uh, but I, you know, I'm trying to stay on it. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to frame my experience from a place of compassion, as opposed to a, a place of contempt. It's very difficult. Anger is very satisfying to those who are angry. Very destructive to anybody else around them. And ultimately, that comes back around, man. When when anger is satisfying and you're done scorching and you're like all right i feel better how come there's no houses anymore how come there's no people hanging around yeah how come i'm all alone on this smoldering terrain oh because you're king asshole now that is your kingdom you you are the you are the overseer of of a of a a land of smoldering terrain and and crying people and people running away i hope that felt good now, you, how are you going to fix it? How are you going to rebuild it? I don't know. I guess uh should get back on the high road or at least take the high road to a to a, a spiritual and emotional Home Depot and see what they got. Get some nice lighting. 
some some drywall that I can use as boundaries. Today on the show, Simon Majumdar. I don't know if you know Simon, but uh, you know I knew him on television, and quite frankly, found him very irritating, but also uh, kind of fascinating. He's he's usually the he's a judge on the next Iron Chef. That's that's where I know him from most. You know, he's got a shaved head, and he's uh, uh, he's British. Seems to be British. See, well, you know, you'll learn everything. I learned everything. You'll learn everything about him. But but I always wondered what the hell is a food critic? How do you get that gig? You know, I ate this and it's good. Uh, well, that's you know, that's that, that's a very limited perception. Can you can you broaden that out a little bit? Can you intellectualize that? Can you you know contextualize it historically? And can you contextualize it regionally? Can you discuss? You know, what regions are involved in that? Can you discuss, you know, why there are, uh, you know, levels of flavor? I just, I was always wondering about it, but I understood it because, you know, through food, you can see history and, uh, and, and, and you can see, you know, how history is, has ebbed and flowed around the world through cuisines. And I don't know, I thought he'd be an interesting guest and he was, and, uh, and I'm going to talk to him. He is, he's the tough critic though, but, uh. But I found him to be a very sweet man, and and that was after judging him. <laughs> yeah, so I judged him. I judged the judge of food, and uh, he's great, and we'll talk to him in a minute. I'll tell you one thing, honestly, about me, like you need more of that, is that I crave, if I don't do interviews, I go a little, I get a little squirrely. I go a little crazy. The reason I do this podcast is not for advertising dollars. It's because I need to talk to people to get out of my own goddamn head and to enjoy the stories and struggles of somebody else. That's how we get by, man. And my brain is doing weird shit. Weird shit. Last night I was in the, I was half asleep and somehow my brain decided that it was writing a Justin Bieber song. What the fuck is that? I don't even know his music. I just know he's this pop, this teen pop sensation. And my brain is like, you know, it's working on lyrics. It's working on melody. Uh, you know, I was not a songwriter, but I was like, I, I, I'd written, I, I, I was, I think it was called, I can't, what was it called? Uh, like I was, I was sure when I was going to bed that I had a whole business plan in place. I was like, I'm just going to write one or two songs for Justin Bieber and just nail that shit. And I'll get the publishing money and I'll be set. And it'll be this weird outside of the box thing that, that I'll, I'll have done. It's like, you know, Marin was a comedian, did this podcast, he did other shit. And then like, you know, out of nowhere, he wrote these two massive songs for Justin Bieber. It was weird. I didn't think anybody would judge me for it. It just, you know, it was just something I, I would do on the side, write these Justin Bieber hits. And it was all going on in my brain. It's like that, you know. I, I think I, after watching the Harry Nilsson documentary and and you know and, and uh, watching some, uh, reading some stuff on Phil Spector, I'm like, I just I just got to create a couple of pop tunes, a couple of pop hits. And uh, and and it was happening in my head. And I, I and I think the song was called uh, "I Can't." What was it? it? Oh, it won't work without you. That's what it was called. I, and I'd, I'd written a couple of couplets in my brain and I was sure that I would remember the melody and the song when I woke up. I'm like, I, I, I was asleep, but you know when you're asleep and you're like, I'll remember this. I'll remember this. And it's like important to you in the moment, but you don't realize you're really sleeping for most practical purposes. And you're like, no, I got it. I got this. And then you wake up and all I woke up with was like, fuck. I, I lost that Justin Bieber song. I, I lost the... 
the hit song I was writing for J- Justin Bieber. I, why? What is wrong with me? I'm beating myself up this morning about not remembering uh, what was going to be a huge hit for Justin Bieber. So all I can say is I'm sorry, Justin. I don't know what's going to happen tonight, but uh, it won't work without you. Is uh, I don't even know if there's a song called that. There should be a song called that. But uh, it's not going to be the Justin Bieber song, the Mark Maron Justin Bieber song. I don't, I don't know what's going on with me, people. I, I don't fucking know. Who knows? Tonight, maybe there's a, maybe, maybe Miley, Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. Maybe my, I should know her name if my brain's going to write her songs. Maybe, maybe I'll drift away knowing that, like, I got a Miley Cyrus hit, uh, you know, right there. It's right at the tip of my brain. I'll remember it. I'll remember it, Miley. Because that's my next thing, apparently. I'm going to write a big pop song for a teen sensation. Let's enjoy a talk about food with Simon Majumdar. God, I hope I did that right. Wasn't uh, minstrelsy sort of popular in the UK a lot longer than it should be? Huge. Black and white minstrels <laughs> yeah. went on until the 1980s. Isn't that cr- crazy? Because I, I, it didn't have the same connotations. And then suddenly, it's like people suddenly woke up and went, what the hell are we watching? How is this right? Yeah. yeah, and then and then and then it disappeared, and now you can find. It's like we used to have on the jam containers. Yeah. We had a company called Robinson Jam. Yeah, and their thing was what's called, and now you can't even say the word, but it was a, a it was called a gollywog, and that, yeah. and they used to sell little pendants, and this sure. was until the nineties. Yeah, we had stuff like that. I don't think it went on that long. Well, you had, had Sambo's restaurant and Darkies toothpaste, sure, and, yeah. and it was all it was all fine, and then suddenly it's like. Kind of the scales lifted and said, "This, this kind of isn't right." Yeah, this anymore. is uh, marginalizing we, and racist, and we shouldn't uh, be doing it. But yeah. yeah, some very, very famous people had their start on the black and white minstrel show. Yeah, well, in Britain, in Britain, like, uh, like who? What are people I would uh, know? Well, comedians, Lenny Henry. Okay, and that's the odd thing because there you have sure. a, a Caribbean, you know, a guy from a Caribbean background, was the only true blackface on. And is he oh, the black and white minstrel? Right, right. And he's uh, is he black? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. I don't. I'm not familiar. Like, see, he's, he's a big he's, cutoff for me with was, the British comedy. Um, you know, he's he. Well, it's a great scene, and there were some terrific people, particularly through the times of the Comedy Store and all of those guys. Yeah, all, all the people. Who I know some them. of the modern ones. I've interviewed Stuart Lee, you know, and certainly oh, I know. But like, you know, getting it here—that was the interesting thing about comedy and, and from the UK—is it, it? It didn't come here like music. I mean, all of a sudden, we've got to go digging for that stuff outside of Monty Python and uh, and some of the Rowan Atkinson stuff. And I, I mean, mean we just didn't get it. It's happening now. I think yep. a lot of it with with the shows so obviously things like ricky gervais and what oh happened yeah, with that. yeah and then yeah. things like peep show yeah but but the big mistake is that people try and remake it yeah both here. they're redoing it in the <laughs> uk they're remaking um everyone loves raymond yeah and it's entirely missing the point of why those shows exist well, they're lightning guy, in a bottle right well that guy franchises that you yeah. know i've interviewed him have you seen that documentary exporting ray it's very yeah. it's very compelling but it's a little annoying uh, that something can be that they think they can format it and focus in on on certain uh fam- familial issues that will just translate anywhere i don't know if it's true really well they learned i think they learned that one of the things the uh, british tv is very good at yeah it's creating formats. And right. you look at so many formats. Like on, The Office is oh, pretty genius. Well, it's 40, 40 different countries now. Is it really? 40 different countries. I've seen it in China. I've seen it in India. I've seen it in France. Is this a good thing, you think? I um, mean, intellectually and, and, and also otherwise. I mean, when something can be a franchise that is something that you think is organic. and Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's just a delivery system. Well, it is. I think it is. I mean, it's yeah. it's, 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 
almost like not having to do the work. It's buying a franchise right. and going, all the work's been done. But but sometimes you can take it outside of that. Look at the office in the U.S. And I was fully prepared to go, the office in the U.S. is going to suck. It's going to be bad. Yeah, right. And the first Good. few episodes actually did. Yeah. For once, right. in a rare time in the U.S., things were given time to kind of breathe. Yeah. And I think it's because of Steve Carell and people going, sure. well, he's, we've put a lot into this. And eventually, is it my favorite show on TV? No. But did it build its own life totally outside of the U.S. office, uh, the U.K. office? Yeah. Absolutely. And also, when you look at the way Gervais built that character, the narcissistic character, yeah. and they did it completely differently, because th- that was real. You can't do what he did, what Gervais did no. with that character. There was nothing, com- nothing can come close to that comedically. It was, I thought it was perfect. And the little bit of redemption at the end wasn't that kind of saccharine, right, sentimental right. redemption. It sure. was just that little glimmer that in this horrific character... There was a spark of kind of life. You you felt uh, you, you you felt compassion for him, and you, you absolutely and, did. And, and like to make him a sympathetic character, as profoundly selfish as he was, was no. It's not an easy trick. No, I mean, and and to make you want to watch him, and those yeah. certain those certain aspects that will have become part of culture. You know, yeah. the dance. Everybody yeah, yeah, knows yeah. it. Oh, those that th- thing was crazy. Yeah, of course, it was, and it was brilliant, and yeah. it was improvised, and it. But it's become. Just part of the culture, as yeah. much as any of some of the Monty Python, you sure, know, the uh, dead right. parrot or whatever, right, it's become right. part of the culture. I think one of the other things about British comedy yeah. is, about a lot, is we kind of know when to quit. <laughs> well, yeah, there's something about the intimacy of your show business landscape that sort of uh, allows that to happen. Yeah, you can go, I've done this. Yeah, and then that's it. Because Let's... it's not run by advertising. Right. You, no one suddenly comes and does what they did for Seinfeld and waves five right. million an episode yeah. and says, "Let's do this for one more season." Right, and you know what? I'm, I'm sure all his uh, castmates wanted to kill him when he said, "You know, I've got a hundred and whatever, and I'm we're syndicated. Yeah. I've made half a billion. You know, another no, twenty-five is yeah. in in the UK. The, there's not that much money involved. Couple so cre- of years, creativity years. is allowed to mm-hmm. be. Look at the, I, to me the greatest sitcom of all time, Faulty Towers. Right, twelve episodes. That was two, it. 12 episodes they're still brilliant that's a good way to look at it man because like you know here you're always as somebody who's in uh the business you're kind of chasing it like there's part of you that thinks like yeah i just want more and sometimes if it's really brilliant why not just let it be before it becomes ruined and also in the uk and also in uh, canada i think it seems like you you know you've done your time we got a line of people that have been around for a little while everyone seems to get their turn over there i like that and everyone uh, except one of the things that i think is really blissful about this country that i'm finding out from living here you live that, here now yeah i live in culver city i had no idea yeah i've lived here for three years that's wow. why i've got this slightly haunted look for i was three years in la yeah i'm de- de- uh, developing just that quite kind of bubble of self-entitlement <laughs> it, it comes from being in your car about it. <laughs> it <laughs> does <laughs> where you don't take care i've learned you know indicators or signals are optional sure, i'm beginning to sure. learn all of this stuff yeah. um but i think um one of the things I'm I'm learning here is you do get the chance to do things in England. I would never have got the chance chances to do what I do now for a living mm-hmm. because I did something totally different. And there is this thing that goes, you can't do that. Get back here. Why is that? Why do you um, think that's British specifically? It's it's it's, it's rooted in the class system. It's mm. rooted in in being such a small country with such a big population mm-hmm. or relatively big, you know, ninety million people all vying to do stuff. So everyone is very segmented. You're a singer, yeah. So if you're a singer, you can't act. If right. you're an actor, you can't dance. If you a comedian you can't write yeah 
And it's beginning to break through, particularly uh-huh. with people like Stephen Fry, the real polymaths, David Mitchell from Peep Show. What did you call them? Polymorphs? Polymath. Polymaths. Oh, what, what does that mean? So basically, it means someone who can I like do it. a bit. I, I love it. Like I love a Renaissance man? Yeah, basically, it's mm-hmm. someone who can do a bit of everything. That's, I like And that. do it well. I yeah. mean, Stephen Fry is the perfect example yeah. because the guy's got a brain the size of a planet and everything he turns his hand to seems to turn to gold. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, kind of what I do, Alton Brown's another one. Yeah. Yeah, they, you kind of find these people, whatever they do, they do it so well. Well, you, well this is interesting that like my i first uh, right you know i i didn't know you until i saw uh, iron chef uh-huh and you know initially i was like who, who the fuck is that guy <laughs> what can, what, you know, get what? to the back of the line <laughs> <laughs> but not in a bad way because you know the 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 sort of intellectual side of understanding food and its place in history and also where things come from and why like i kind of get you know how food criticism can work it's like any other type of criticism if it's if it's thoughtful and it's well referenced and it comes from a place of intelligence and heart you know it's necessary but uh you know but some critics are just like nah, i didn't like it or whatever but you seem to be well founded in in how you approach this but where does someone how does someone decide to do that what is the like what are you the legacy of when you decide to be a food critic or somebody who is a food intellectual, what did you do before and how did you come to that? Well, I think it doesn't come from food. I think it comes from criticism. Right, okay. Uh, and to me, it's like anything, and, and you've picked up on it, when I'm on the show, I don't want to just go, this is yummy, because that's meaningless. Yeah, well, who, I, I who agree. Cares? Yeah, it's like so, saying this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I want to go, yeah, exactly. What does it, I mean, what does it mean? What I want to go is... I like this dish because, or you've called it this and it isn't, or you've done this dish and they're doing it a lot at the moment with this new challenge on Iron Chef with these eggs that everybody seems to be cooking that's that's taken from Arpege in Paris and everyone seems to be doing them. And I go, well, by the way, this is is tasty enough, but I'm not going to give you much points for creativity because I've seen it a dozen times before. What's the perfect egg idea? Well, they do this uh, little egg that comes from this particular restaurant in Paris. Yeah. called arpege and they and they kind of take the top off take the egg out they scramble it slightly put it back in the egg float it in the water for about 25 minutes on a tepid heat Uh top it with a little maple whipped cream and Uh truffle and that's that's the dish and they've all been i mean i've seen it a dozen times and everyone who brings it up thinks they've reinvented the wheel and and it's you 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 have to stifle (laughs) the yawns how i came to do this is really weird i mean food's always been my obsession i talk about it in my my first book um eat my globe is that i basically uh all our family were obsessed to the to the point of craziness with food what what kind of family do you come from well it's a very mixed family my father's still with us he's a bengali retired orthopedic surgeon my dad's orthopedic surgeon oh well there you go so retired orthopedic surgeon they we have something in common my yeah my dad retired well probably about 20 years ago and then became a legal expert and became five times as wealthy becoming a legal expert a legal expert in medicine in yeah medical witness basically right right for depositions yeah right so if if someone was suing someone because you know their arm was hurting the, the, so he, he would go. stand on the side of the doctor usually. Is it? He on both sides. He yeah. would he would be brought in as the kind of independent. Right, my uh, dad did some of that because and, and it's yeah. you know, it's a big it's a big business. Well, that's because people just like sue everybody. Absolutely, and I there mean, has to be some protection. I intend to trip on my way out of here. You'll be hearing <laughs> from my lawyer soon. <laughs> um, I think I'm covered for that. <laughs> but you need, yeah, you probably need to be in this country. But uh, and my mother, he came over to from India to the UK in the 1950s um, and. He came to Wales, which was one of the big surgical hospitals, was in Wales, Wales. at the time. Yeah, 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 the Royal Newport in yeah, Gwent, yeah, yeah. Uh, Royal Gwent in Newport, Wales. Right. And my mother was a nurse there. And there was this big thing of Welsh nurses marrying uh, these very exotic 
dark-skinned Indian doctors. That so was a thing? It was a thing because they, I guess they kind of interconnected. <laughs> they were all young and, you know, and it was uh, these fiery Welsh nurses. So my mother married and she took the name Gwen Majumda, which is a fantastic name. Beautiful. A real mix. And best of both worlds. Absolutely. Well, yeah. her best friends were even better. She had friends that's... Uh, nursing college who were called Mavanwi Banerjee and Blodwin Patel. <laughs> Blodwin Patel. Patel. I mean, you couldn't make that. Uh, you talk beautiful. about script writing. Life is far better than any script writer will ever be. But at that level, in, in terms of how that was received, uh, you know, by the, the Welsh families, I mean, you know, intermarriage was not an issue if, as long as it was a doctor or what? <laughs> well, it was. it's funny enough. I mean, that was not a happy time. That was very much the time in, mm -hmm. in the UK where you would see signs outside you know how saying no bl blacks no dogs no irish right and that was very much part of our culture in the 50s you know mm -hmm. there was still a lot of racism yeah and uh but uh, and they did experience that you know mixed race couple yeah. very rare in those days uh, but, but my grandparents didn't seem to care at all. In fact, they absolutely adored my grand, uh, my father until the day they both died. You know. They, yeah, yeah. So it was. Well, a he is a doctor. I mean, I, that's not I think, nothing. I think the fact that he was a doctor, and I think <laughs> yeah. the fact that he became well off and helped pay their bills, and, and uh -huh. also but that, they, that changes a lot it, of attitude. It, yeah, it could really it could really help once <laughs> yeah, you start yeah. rattling the right. wallet and paying a few bills. But to be fair, even before that, they absolutely loved him, and he was part of the family. Um, and so they never had that issue. In fact, I probably had more issues as I got older, being the son of the rich doctor, and I lived in a northern mining town, Sheffield. So you is, got a lot of shit from the working class. Yeah, I was basically, you know, we lived in the basically the equivalent of Pittsburgh in England. Because your father's practice was there, that's where he ended up? Yeah, that... he, he ended up there because of the institutional racism of the National Health Service. He couldn't find a job in the South and ended up in this tiny sort of town up in the North. Well, that's interesting because like uh, a doctor is on some level there a civil servant and yeah. that you, you are assigned. See that? Uh, well, no, you're not assigned. No, you. You have choices. You have lots of choices. I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's a great system, and it works because you can you have the the public health care. Yeah, he was also allowed to practice privately, so he did quite well out of that. But it was where he could find a job, and it, it was a very much a boys' club. Mm -hmm. So he he wasn't allowed to like everything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> yeah, if you're yeah. in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. Right. Getting in is very hard. And yeah. Once you're in, it's very hard to get out. Right. Um. So he had to go up to this sort of back end of nowhere, really. And, and that's where I was brought up in this mining steel town that Margaret Thatcher killed. Yeah. I mean, you know, this yeah. place went from sort of almost entirely being employed to almost entirely unemployed. And were you there when that happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, I mean, you know, I, I wanted to fly back to England just to make sure she was dead. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to lie about it. <laughs> you? Uh, well, you know, I don't, you know, wishing anybody dead, but it, it was very interesting, the response from the UK because it was divided almost entirely down the middle. When she died. There was no grey. There was no one going, oh, sure. well, she was okay, but she did some bad things. There were people who said she was the devil incarnate and people who thought she was the second that, coming of I'm, the good Lord. I'm sure that divided right along political lines. Absolutely. Yeah, Straight yeah. down the middle. Right. Um, and surprises, it always surprises me. It's like I can never really understand the kind of working class conservative, the working class right wing. I met a guy whose grandfather once said to me, I used to walk 13 miles in my bare feet to vote conservative. But on that side, you know, I truly would not be doing what I'm doing now or be allowed to do what I'm doing now in the UK. I would never have had this opportunity. Which is just doing what you want to do and uh, in terms of writing the books you want to write and, and being a, a, a celebrity, uh, <laughs> a food celebrity. I think uh, what do you mean exactly? Well, because in the UK, I was a book publisher. 
Were I you, end up, you I worked ended, for a publishing house or you yeah, had your I own worked, No, I worked for a publishing house and I helped run a company. So I worked for Penguin, Weidenfeld and Nicholson, some of the uh, best publishers in the world. And I ended up doing that through... I actually trained, believe it or not, my university. I wanted to be an Episcopalian priest. I studied theology for three years. Are you serious? Yeah. I mean, wait, because of, of deep belief or because... I have deep belief, yeah. I mean, and you it's still kind have of, it? I have some of it. It's been, yeah. A lot of it's been chipped away. I think life does that to you. Um, but it still kind of comes out under the surface every now and again. Uh-huh. And um, my, my father could care less about it. My mother was Welsh Baptist, so I don't know how I ended up in this kind of... Where did your father come from? He's Hindu. Okay, but, he, but you didn't no, have it? He has no uh, sort of religious belief of yeah, any sort uh-huh. that I've ever noticed anyway. Well, what was the kind of food, you know, getting back to that, I mean, you, you know, was there... What did you grow up with food-wise? Because, I mean, British food, I know you wrote another book about British food, didn't you? I did, Eating for Britain. Yeah. Very underrated. Most people who talk about British food... They condescend and they... Uh, Either went there, it's, you know, it's the teeth thing as well. Everyone sure. went there in the 1980s. Years of teeth and bad food. Yeah, yeah. and they, and they mm-hmm. yeah, they probably ate at some cha- it's, it, chain restaurant outside the hotel, came back and said British food is horrible. Now, the truth is it probably was. Up uh-huh. until about what I call the Big Bang, which is the sort of time of Marco Pierre White and Gordon Ramsay beginning to come through and then all these great chefs coming right. through. Now, I would argue that London in particular is as good an eating city as anywhere in the world and is probably challenging New York. With and indigenous it, food, though, not just chefs, but, I mean, with food that is English in heritage. With indigenous food, with things that are uniquely British and done well. Now, uh-huh. is it ever going to be fine haute cuisine in the way? No, absolutely not. It was never meant to be. Right. Um, but But when it's done well, it can be really, really delicious. And we also have, as any chef will tell you who's been there and traveled around, we have the best produce probably I've ever seen. We have incredible seafood. We have incredible crops. We have beautiful seasonal, you know, asparagus. I find that in Europe in general, the few times I've been there, there's a, an intimacy to, like here, you know, you've got to really, you know, now the local farm or, you know, shop local or, or small farms. I mean, that's sort of a challenge to find the, the routing for that stuff. But those countries, you're, I mean, Britain is by, it's smaller. It's, we're not trying to th- feed yeah. 300 million people. And you don't, you're not necessarily shipping things in from Costa Rica just uh, because of deals of, uh, that it's cheaper to get oranges from there or whatever. Well, also, yeah, politically. Yeah. You know, let, we, you'll buy X from us, and we'll, so we'll buy your oranges, right. or we'll buy your bananas, or whatever right. it is. I've actually just spent the last week working on one of the most famous small farms in the country called Love Apple Farm, which is up in Santa Cruz, working as one of their apprentices, sleeping in the bunkhouses for my new book that I'm working on. Um, so that's an old hippie farm? Uh, it's it's not. It's Although it's actually based on the site where the old Smothers Brothers Vineyard, to bring it back to comedy, uh-huh. uh, used to be. Uh, but now it's this beautiful farm that supplies, mainly operates as a kitchen garden for one of the best restaurants in the country, Manresa, up uh-huh. in Los Gatos. So I just went to work with them. I was up at six o'clock every morning clipping little flowers, you know, because the chef makes what a lot of people wrongly dismiss as kind of tweezer food, but very delightful very pretty place so there's a lot of that going on but it was a great experience but going back just to british food i think it it developed and it developed and a lot of influences people began to travel but british food is almost entirely made up of um references to its immigration and to trade right you know we had fish and chips is a Portuguese, half Portuguese, half Belgian dish, really. You know, the Belgians who uh-huh. were thrown out of, yeah. um, were thrown out, the Belgian Huguenots, and they came to Britain and they knew how to fry 
potatoes in horse fat. And that's where you got it. And you had the Portuguese Jews who were thrown out of Portugal and ended up in East London who knew how to fry fish. And these intermingled in London. Next thing you know, 1844, someone opens a fish and chip shop. And that changed the, the history of the world. Which, absolutely. It's fish and chips. Yeah, it's it's, it's the chip. quintessential British dish. Yeah. But chicken tikka masala. I actually did a demonstration the other day, and they asked me to do chicken tikka masala as an Indian demonstration. And I said, well, it's not, it's not Indian. It was invented in Glasgow. How, how is that? But it was partially Indian because well, of the it, spices, right? It, well, no. What happened was there was a guy, a Pakistani guy uh, yeah. called Asif Aslam, who has a restaurant called the Shish Mahal in Glasgow. Yeah. He was doing Indian food. And he did chicken tikka, which is absolutely Indian. Right. But the cab drivers who used to come in complained it was always too dry. So he had cans of Campbell's soup in the back and poured them over it, spiced it up a bit. Chicken tikka masala. That's the original. That's the original. Chicken chicken. tikka is just cubes of chicken. It's uh, marinated cubes of chicken that's cooked cooked on the the tandoor. Right. That's chicken tikka. So so and so cabbies uh, they're like I need something to moisten this up a little bit. uh, That's chicken tikka masala. So. To me, everything that happens in Britain is is a result of its image, or not everything. But what about the classic sort of pies and pasties and this and pies, that? Pies, sausages, all of those sort of things. A lot of it came over with the Romans. That's the, a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they came good. over, and then it was the Italians who came in and taught, uh, you because know, most of the pies, pa- uh, original thing of pies, the uh, pastry on top, yeah. was thrown away. It was just a casement. Yeah. But then the Italians came over in the 11th century because of the royal courts and all the intermarrying. And the Italian chefs came in and they were the first people to make sweet pastry and they brought that to Britain. Or pastry that was edible. So and that's how you start making pies. I made veal pie last night for my wife. Really? Yeah, she loved it. And I was at these little mini pies. So you're a good chef. I'm not a chef. There's a big You're difference. A I'm a cook. Now, right. I'm actually a very good cook. Okay. And I, I'm not afraid to say it, but I'm not battle-hardened like some of these chefs you see. Well, now, let's draw a differentiation because, okay. you, know, you know, I'm a big fan of... I've had... I've talked to Scott Conan. I know. I heard it. Yeah. Fantastic. He's a great guy. Great guy. He's a great chef. Yeah. I, a really terrific chef. If you have never had his pasta pomodoro at Scopetta, just just He go. made it for me. He made the spaghetti for me. Oh, just the, the basic yeah. spaghetti. He taught me how to make it, <clears throat> and I make it at home now. <laughs> and I interviewed Alex in here, but we had a nice chat. She's great. Great. But I've always been fascinated with it because, you know, I, I, I have a knack for it, but I'm not, you know, a student of it. I think I could cook, and I had a, you know, I think some part of me wanted to be a chef, but I'm not. But I've become sort of fascinated, like everybody in the world, with foodie culture. But the, the differentiation between a chef and a cook is a chef is somebody who earned that title, right? I, I mean, a cook is somebody who can, who can cook. Well, no, a chef is really a, a managerial position. Hefe. Okay. So, so it, it's the manager of the kitchen. Now, they did cook, now, and some co- uh, sh- kitchens are just the chef. Yeah. But really, the chef was the manager of that brigade. And the reason, you know, the original celebrity chef was a guy called Antonin Karem going back to Napoleon. I mean... It, did from, he have a show? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> got cancelled after two episodes. <laughs> no one could understand yeah. him. But they... Um, when the Russians invaded Paris in the early part of the 18th century, uh, this guy this guy was the chef to Napoleon, to Talleyrand. And, and that's one of the reasons why chefs wear those tall hats that everyone wears, because he was a little guy. So he they all wore these floppy hats, and yeah. he starched his so that people could see him in these huge palace kitchens. Ah. And that's why these toques, as they're called, are so high. So uh, one of the things I love is the history of food and, the, and these kind of... Origins. Well, that's what you're bringing to. I think that's what makes you unique in how you approach food. Crit is that that's part. That's the part of you that really uses. You know what cultural criticism, what criticism in general is supposed to be about. And I I don't know that. I don't know if you're 
if there are sources that you have for other food critics that inspired you, but I mean, how did you put this together? Because you were in publishing and you had to read uh, criticism at some point in college or what? Well, I've always been fascinated with criticism, as I've always been fascinated with food. So Who are your guys in criticism? Well, people in the U- UK... Clive James. If you've mm. ever read Clive James, who's an Australian guy, in fact, but whose career, he's he's rather ill now. I, I think he's still with us, but uh, he must be in his 80s. But uh-huh. he, he wrote about TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy, I remember being you know, 11 or 12 and reading this in the Sunday paper and almost wetting myself with laughter because yeah. he would... Yeah, he's a man who wrote about Arnold Schwarzenegger that he looked like a bag full of walnuts. Yeah. And that has stayed with me ever <laughs> since. That It's just that beauteous way of getting something... The poetic. Well, it's it's poetic and exact yeah. because the moment he said that you got it yeah. and from now on I can't look at Schwarzenegger in any other way yeah, than yeah. It being a bag full of walnuts right um, and I think there are people like that there are people from uh, or, um, yeah, the um, I can't remember his full name now who was the theatre critic and these people who, uh, who Pauline Kael over here sure. who, who wrote in real depth but they were they were clever and they were smart and they brought depth. And what they didn't just do is go, I like this, I don't. That's not criticism. That's what garbage. They, what they said is putting things in context. Now, I'm, I guarantee it, uh, when you look at a comedy bit, mm-hmm. when you watch a comedian mm-hmm. now and, and you go, oh, yeah, that's a good bit. Now, you can put that in context. You know, I if I look at Chris Rock or if yeah. I look at, I see Richard Pryor. Sure. You you know, and and they so acknowledge, did he. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, uh, thank God he's not around and litigious. Yeah, um, but but you can see how people built their careers. Oh yeah, yeah. There's and also you can see it historically, not just with individuals. That there 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 are people that you know, become uh, archetypes almost. Absolutely, the source. They are the source, and, yeah. and particularly there's a generation now for whom Pryor is absolutely that starting point. Mm-hmm. And, and there are other, yeah, the crazies kinds for whom Robin Williams might be. And sure, Andy Kaufman. There's, yeah. It's almost like uh, I, I say it a lot on here. Commedia dell'arte is yeah. that you have archetypes in anything, and I, and I think intellectually that works with with cooking in terms of of regions. It's funny you say that about um, uh, the dell'arte and the comedia. I was t- actually Alton Brown and I were chatting about this, and we're also chatting about the the way the minstrel shows used to work, sure. and we were and the fact that a lot of the shows now follow very ancient kind of types. So, for yep. example, Iron Chef or Next Iron Chef, particularly Roman drama, uh-huh. you know, where the gods sitting on the panel. <laughs> yeah. Alton is almost like if you look at the old staging of the minstrel shows, they had a character called Mister Interlocutor, yep. who was very much from Plautus. It was the same as the the ribald slave who right. would come on and comment. And the clown oh, is almost a jester character, or a clown, or an MC, or an, or, an MC, but also someone who'd come in and just stir things up a bit and disappear again. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And kind of that's Alton's uh-huh, role uh-huh. as the host of Next Time. Yeah. He comes in, prods a few people, uh-huh. says, do you really believe this? Gets yeah. us to say something outrageous and, and then, then disappears try, a bit. And tries to guess what they're going to do with, you know, so you're going to bring that and that's So gonna, these types um, yeah. flow through and sure. just as they do through in all sitcoms, there's always in every sitcom, you'll see them going back to these of course. absolute sources, even back to Roman times. But it's all, it's it, the weird thing about that is though, is that it is, it, it's wired in, it's unconscious. No one's sitting there in, uh, in, in, in the, in the Iron Chef development room or in a, in a writer's room going, we really need to draw from the Romans on this or the Greeks or even further back. No, I think it's because it, it, exactly. It just it, works. It it taps into sort of basic desires. Mm-hmm. We want when you watch a show, mm-hmm. you want someone to like, you want someone to hate. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and sometimes I'm the one who they hate because I'm honest. The tricky thing is to be the guy that they like and hate. Well, that's what I get. I get people going, "I love watching you, but but you drive me nuts." And I go, "Perfect." 
good yeah that's your that's your role but i think that what what makes you in, in my you know is that you're you're a formidable intellect right I hope. <laughs> and, and, and so like, you know, that you like some of the things that you've said that you bring your experience, you know, intellectually and also from putting things into your mouth, uh, you know, around the world, that that's something there's an education there. Like when I watch you, I'm like, oh, here we go. And then and then you say, you know, I've had this before and I, I just think that something wasn't right. And you believe you because you've done your homework. Well, I've I've invested in myself. You know, I've spent every penny I ever had saved. I spent to do my first book. It was uh, all on you. It, but, but what was the break from the... Like, what exactly were you doing in publishing? Were you an editor? Were you... What, what? I, I, I was... Uh, by the end, I was... I've done everything. Sales. I did a bit of editing. I did all sorts. But by the end, I was helping run a, a small company that produced a lot of cookbooks. We did a lot of the Weber cookery books, for example, in, mm -hmm. in Europe, which mm -hmm. where it's huge. Believe mm -hmm. it or not, outside of the US, the biggest market for Weber grills is Denmark. So we sold millions and millions really? of Really? Why oh, yeah. is that? It's... Almost everybody in the country owns a Weber grill. In fact, I think it's almost illegal for them not to have one. They're I have obsessed one. Obsessed with it. They're great. They're the fantastic little things. Yeah. The, little the little smoky jar. Yeah, I yeah. Love it. yeah. I wish I had room for one. I've got a tiny little apartment. Why can't we get you a bigger apartment? Uh, I wish. But who knows whether I stay here long <laughs> yeah. enough. Okay. Um, but the uh, so I did that, and yeah. then I had a breakdown. I had a full-on, you know, jump off a cliff kind of breakdown i i yeah i almost wasn't here do you remember the moment yeah i remember the night where i kind of saved myself and i was cooking a dish that i actually put a recipe for in the book called lsd life-saving dal not the lsd that a, a lot of comedians might be familiar <laughs> yeah. with life-saving dal which is like a lentil, lentil soup. yeah it's a, it's it's a bengali chicken soup it saved me so and it was so, something comforting uh, that you knew i was started cooking it but i had a breakdown my mother had died she died of leukemia the job was getting as many jobs do where you spend half your life just just staring at spreadsheets and shouting at people just servicing just, something yeah and i just became so disconnected from anything that i was enjoying and and i started getting a little unwell and you know panic attacks and and i honestly thought i wasn't going to be here yeah. you were you you were having sort of like uh suicidal ruminations and you know, you know what what is life what's the point of it and it was actually that kind of serious yeah and, and I've, I've been there yeah and i came home one day, and I, I realized that sat in the dark for about two hours, yeah, just staring, doing nothing. A healthy thing. Yeah, nice. And, and actually, thank God, I, the <laughs> smells from the apartment below kind of wafted up, and it was uh, I, the Middle Eastern family, and they were cooking something amazing. And I kind of went, oh, I'm hungry now. So I was more hungry than suicidal, thank God, at that point, and I started cooking. I think that's how America actually built its <laughs> business model. I mean, that is, that is what, that's more our economy. More hungry than suicidal. <laughs> that's, how, that's how America works. Well, it, thank God it worked for me because yeah. I started cooking and I actually found a notebook. And, and when I turned 40, someone had sent me on one of these um, Tony Robbins courses for my 40th birthday. So they were really concerned. <laughs> that, I think it was more punishment. It was genuinely a little bit scary. I mean, you know. You these, went to a Tony Robbins. I actually went for about half an hour. But no, I went for a bit longer. But um, the only thing I got out of it, apart from learning how to punch the air and go whoop a lot, which is a terribly American thing. And if you can look at me, I'm not the sort of person who whoops. I don't see you whooping. I'm not a great no, whooper. Yeah. Um, I'm a whoop-free zone. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they, they, uh, but it, how to list goals. So I'd actually written down, I found this notebook while I was yeah. cooking. I noticed it and I started yeah. reading it. Yeah. And it had all my goals on. Uh -huh. uh, one was have a soup made in Savile Row. Did that. Where's that? Savile Rose, well, oh, all yeah, the great right. suits, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Suit. I mean, oh, a suit. I thought you were saying soup. No, I have, have a suit, mate. And it was, 
I, I loved it because you know I was, I was although I did get kind of put down a bit I was having my you know, trousers all of that uh -huh, measurements uh -huh, going down uh -huh. and uh, I'd read somewhere that you should tell them which side you dress you yeah. know you have to which side you dangle uh -huh. oh really so they yeah. put a bit of extra material on that really side. yeah who knew wow so I read about this so yeah. I said to this elderly guy who was yeah. down yeah. on his knees yeah. kind of measuring me uh -huh. up, I said oh just in case you need to know I dress to the left uh -huh. And he looked up to me, and I still remember, he goes, I don't think it's going to matter much, sir, do you? Which is the nicest way of anyone ever telling you you've got a small cock you'll ever, ever get. <laughs> oh, do you think that was really it? Or maybe it was just a mythology about about whether... I mean, how could they really... Unless you're huge. I, it, I suspect, you know, it might rub. And you thought, yeah, sure. It might wear out. Uh, so, you know, to make the trousers last longer, they might... But it, apparently it didn't matter. Did he laugh? Or was uh, it no, was he, very practical? No, no. These guys are absolutely deadly serious. They take... Anyway, it was a beautiful suit. I, hmm. I love it. You still got uh, it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that was on. That was I one of the did goals. that, ran a marathon, New York. Did the New York Marathon, hardest thing I've ever done. Never, ever do that again. This ever. was on your goal list before you went to the Tony Robbins thing? Yep. Mm -hmm. I, so I've, I, I'd, um, what else had I done? I'd, um, you trained for a marathon? Yeah. You, you weren't an athletic guy before, it was just a really? goal? I mean, I know this is on radio, but yeah. look at me. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I mean, I you know, you're good. Jab of the judge. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so I did the marathon. Yeah. I, I, uh, I had the suit made. Oh, I had my teeth straightened. I did have, I mean, very strong British teeth, but I always, I laugh about it. I say they look like an abandoned cemetery. They were kind of all over oh, the really? place. Oh, yeah. really? So I had them strained, 40 where years they, old. Where'd they come from? Your mother's side? Well, no, the thing in Britain with the teeth was, you guys have, uh, at the other end, that's yeah. why all your food's so soft. Yeah. Everyone's had so much work done on their teeth. And we're at Britain at the other end, where, quite frankly, after the war, there were far more important medical things like keeping people alive right. and having people having right. their teeth fixed. Sure. And it's a less... I think people, it's changing, but I don't think people are as impressed by certain visual things like, mm -hmm. per, you know, yeah, things yeah, like yeah. teeth in yeah, Britain. Yeah, my they, teeth are not great. Yeah, so, but here it seems to be a fixation. Sure. Anyway, I, it became like that for it's me. It's a racket is what it is It here. is a racket, okay. but also it was affecting my health, I was told, because they were crooked and You weren't chewing well. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So I had them fixed. Yeah. But at the bottom, I'd just written uh, four words, and it just said, go everywhere, eat everything. Mm. And I went... It, it, and it literally was me going, I went, okay. Yeah. And the next morning I went in and spoke to the woman who actually owned the company that I was running. And I just said, I'm off. I I'm off go, around the world. I have to go everywhere and eat everything. And she was very supportive. And that's <laughs> it. I, I, I left. I went off. And you know, a few weeks later, I found myself standing on Bondi Beach. <laughs> so, and that was the beginning of this journey. It took in 31 Bondi, countries. In Australia? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it was stunning. So, okay. So, but, you know, to eat everything, was it was was your goal in mind... To, to make food and thinking about food and, and, and putting food into context the goal? Or you were just sort of like, I'm just hungry and I need to get the fuck out of here? I wanted to, I wanted to use it as a way to meet people. Uh -huh. kind of and and i i'm i'm looking back with yeah with hindsight at yeah. what i wanted to do but it kind of refreshed and restored my faith in humanity and it absolutely did you'd gotten isolated more than isolated i just yeah i felt no connection to the world or anyone in it at that point i mean it was kind of talk about being dead inside i absolutely felt like that. It's, a, it's a heartbreaking feeling yeah i mean it's it's a miserable feeling i'm sure there's lots of people who encounter it and i was lucky that i found this kind of ladder out of there and for me it was food and it was the people who, who and also the courage to change yeah, it was, well, I had no choice. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, it was a very brave thing to do. And yeah, it was risky and I spent a lot of money. 
I had no choice. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to stay on the planet, I, I had to do something. So, right. so I don't feel particularly brave about it, although I'm glad, you know, looking back, yeah, I guess it was, from, certainly from other people's points of view. But, you know, I got in touch with people, so I really wanted to, to just go and find out about food. And that wasn't just gluttony. So it was cooking with people. It was making things. You know, I went up to Scotland to make whiskey for a week. I went on the Trans-Siberian Express and just kind of hung out with, with people. The, with the intention of writing? We, 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 I, I started thinking about it pretty early. Yeah. Um, and then I was very lucky that I had very vague contact with Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, I've talked to him. He's a great and, guy. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. And And... I said to him, well, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm doing this. Have you got any ideas? And he yeah. goes, oh, go here. Go, make sure you go to Vietnam. Make sure you do this. He actually knows people's houses. Go by Joe's place and tell yeah. him I sent you and he'll make you a hot dog. Well, you when you talk about people like that, he's the real deal. Yeah. He's absolutely 100% oh, yeah. the real deal. He, like when I talk to him, he's one of those guys that he's got a real rock and roll sensibility and he's out there and, in, and politically he's correct. And, you know, his understanding of of social issues is great and he brings all of that to the the, the embracing humanity he, of the food he's a polymath in mm-hmm. that sense yeah. he, he genuinely does bring so much and, and funny if you talk to him like he would never consider himself a great chef no yeah he's he he always said and he said very early to me when we i think we had a uh, one night we got very drunk in a pub in london which uh-huh. i suspect a lot of people can say about, <laughs> about uh, spending time with tony bordet <laughs> but he said i i i have no ball uh qualms sorry in uh, admitting i'm a sous chef who got lucky yeah yeah, no, he, you know, the book was, it changed everything. And, but he deserves every ounce oh, of what yeah. he gets. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, people go, oh, you envious of Bourdain and Andrew Zimmer. And I go, no, why? They're great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think, brilliant. well, you, it, right. They, they, they lived the life and sort of carved a path. But I mean, you were, you took your own approach to it. Well, I definitely. What did I he think, tell you to do? Uh, well, no, he, he said, he sent me a quote. And in fact, it's on the front of my book. He said, and he said, put this on the front of your proposal and, the dangerously obsessive, staggeringly knowledgeable, provocative, and opinionated Simon Mujumdar knows his shit. Many would kill to have eaten the meals in their lifetime that Mujumdar has consumed in a single year. Plus, the bastard can write. That book, I, that quote, I genuinely believe created in my career. Oh, and I would, if I haven't seen him since, and if yeah. I see him, I'll give him a big hug. And he may regret it. <laughs> yeah. But um, because when I put that on the front of my book proposal, the one thing I knew is that everybody would at least open the proposal. Mm-hmm. Now, it had to be any good, and hope, thankfully it was good enough that a publisher here bought it for a decent amount of money and a publisher in the UK. Yeah. And that refunded everything that I'd spent. Yeah. So I only ended up back at point zero, but it allowed me to get back to point zero. But you took the risk, and you, so you, you took all your savings, and you started traveling. And, and I, so let's go through some of the places and, and how they, you know, how you moved towards realizing that you had some sort of um, you know, critical approach to food that you thought had had legs, and and that was your own. I mean, there must have been a moment where you're like, "Well, this is this, and it comes from that," and and I can taste all of the history of this and this. This is this is my goal. This is this is my life work here. It, I don't know that it was quite as kind of finger snapping as that, if you mean. Where yeah. there wasn't there wasn't you know a light bulb appearing above my right. head at any point. But I think there was definitely a cumulative effect, and I think as I met the people. And also certain events. I remember being in Mongolia, out in the wilderness of Mongolia, and eating actually one of the things that's probably the nastiest on earth is the fermented horse's milk mm-hmm. that they have there that go, they ferment to about 5% proof and they drink about two liters of it a day. It's, it's not fun. For me, anyway, I didn't, never got a taste for it. I'm not sure I ever would. But they also serve a, a version of clotted cream. Mm-hmm. 
And I, so I thought, well, this is weird because this is almost identical to what I'm eating in Cornwall in England or right. Devonshire, clotted sure. cream. And so I went to do some research. Yeah. And that it actually passed down from, uh, from the Mongols coming in to the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians brought it to Cornwall where they traded skills in making that for the tin that was in Cornwall. Wow. There so that's, so Britain's got no food. It's it almost <laughs> nothing. Well, almost nothing that's indigenous because it's a tiny island that was uh, rocks. Know, it was it was taken over most of the time by yeah. lots of other people, uh-huh. and then and then built its empire. So it was bringing things in from all over the world. You know, I still remember being at school when I was a kid, and the prep school I was in still owned a map that had you know a quarter of it being pink. Uh-huh. You know, from when Britain ruled the world. So. Um, the rest of the world's impact on British food is is absolutely vast. You know, curry, uh-huh. spices, they uh-huh. all came in from uh-huh. from around the world from trade. Tea, you uh-huh. know, the, the British obsession with tea. And there's a great story. I can't remember the name of the man now who went into China dressed, you know, in kind of native gear or colored, colored his skin and stole tea plants and brought them to India so the British could grow them in India because the Chinese wouldn't sell them any of their special plants. Right. And that started, they started in Assam and then Darjeeling. And now, of course, we have this huge Indian tea industry. And in fact, I went up to Darjeeling where they were picking the first flush uh, teas to, wa- to watch these tiny little Nepalese women who are the only ones with hands small enough to pick the butts. Huh. But what you see is the love and care that people have with the food and, and the generosity. I mean, and I know that sounds slightly saccharine as it might be sort of the finishing point of a, you know, an episode of a sitcom. But you, you, I genuinely did find people who just as I'm doing now with my new project, they're just opening up their homes to you. People let me sleep. Never met me before. Didn't know me from, you know, Adam. Uh-huh. And they put me in their homes. They, they let me come into their work. They let me be part of their lives for a short period of did time. You, did you find this to be, because I, I think there's a, a sense when you, you work in uh, your working class or you have a different class status or, or you're engaged in, in the machine of commerce that, you know, you assume that everybody's sort of detached and, and that their socializing is very specific uh, with that, with the like-minded people. But I think that once you enter real communities, uh, of people that are intimate and and maybe of a, a lower social class than you, that the warmth there is is far beyond you know anything you would experience in the stru- you know the competitive world of of a middle or upper class. I, I think to an extent that's certainly true. And and, and when I met you know good blue collar people all over the world, yeah. they they were just well just come and be part, hang out, come and hang out. To be fair, I've yeah. experienced that across the scale, though. Uh-huh. I'm not sure that it's totally driven by class or by success. I've I've met people who are incredibly wealthy, incredibly competitive, incredibly successful, who've just opened up, you know, hearts and lives to me. I absolutely around have. food, around food. See, that's that's the thing. I food is the thing. I always say, if I had been a musician, I'd have gone around the world and sang songs with people, and I yeah. think I would have had the same. In fact, it, it goes down to some basic needs. You yeah, know, but, 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 but music's a little trickier because, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not, you know, offering something. No. Uh, and you've got to have a good voice and you got, like, food. It's like, you know, even if it's just sort of like, I have cookies, you want cookie? I mean, that, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And, and I'll give you a perfect example. Uh-huh. I was on a train going from Marrakesh to Fez. Yeah. Eight-hour journey. Yeah. And I'm sitting in one of these old carriages, you know, six seats. Yeah. Uh, or eight eight of us were crammed in there, and I was on my own, and I hadn't quite planned properly, so I had half a pack of you know Pringles and a bottle of Diet Coke. <laughs> and as we started off on this journey, first of all, everyone's speaking to each other uh-huh. in Arabic, uh-huh. and I, I and they look at me, and they realise that I you know I can't speak. So 
one of them says to me, parlez-vous français? And I say, yeah, but so obviously North Africa. Yeah. So the next thing I know, they change immediately into speaking French. So I could be part of the conversation. Right. The next thing, they see me with my... They all start getting their food out. Yeah. They've all got these trays and... Tra- you know, that they brought with them. Uh, fried fish and uh-huh. ch- roast chicken and breads and grapes and uh-huh. olives and uh-huh. preserved lemons. I mean, cheeses. I mean, just incredible. I mean, it was like a, a dream. And I'm sitting there with my half pack of Pringles and my Diet Coke. And I kind of wave... And they all start sharing. Yeah. Because that's the way. It's about hospitality. Uh-huh. That entire culture is about hospitality. Uh-huh. And I sort of go... Uh, I only have this. Yeah. And they laugh yeah. and they keep on feeding me. Yeah. They keep on saying, well, eat, eat. Yeah. And in fact, they're all cutting off, making sure that I get all the prime parts. You know, there's a beautiful piece of chicken. They make sure I get the juiciest leg. Uh-huh. I get the belly of the fish, which is that fatty, beautiful, gorgeous uh-huh. piece of whatever fish it was. I still don't know. And they keep pushing it towards me. Pure hospitality. Uh-huh. And that kind of, once you experience something like that, it kind of changes the way you think about everyone. Uh-huh. And you know, and that, this isn't even the fact that they were probably, you know, a Christian Muslim or a. It's not about it's nothing. The, it's, it's transcends. It's that. transcends that. It's just to do with the fact that I was a guest, and they wanted not to make themselves look good. It's in their culture to be hospitable, uh-huh. and I found that all over the world. I found it in China. I found it in India. I found it all over Europe. I found it all over, you know, when I was in Spain at the Sherry Fair, where I was, you know, I went to so many places, as I said, 31 countries, and now I've continued to do that. And that was the other thing that I say at the end of the, the book, and I still, it was the beginning. Yeah. It wasn't the end. Right. It was the beginning. And I was lucky enough that I met my wife. One of the reasons I'm in LA now, I met a woman uh-huh. on my journey in Brazil. Oh, really? In Brazil? Is she Brazilian? Uh, she's Filipino-American, but she's mm. she's a, as much a Cali girl. She's lived in California all her life, and hence the fact that I'm here. How old are you? I'm 49, just turned 49. We're like f- the exact same age. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be 50 next year. Uh-huh. I'm actually training for a bodybuilding competition to do in my 50th year. That's my next challenge, uh, outside of the book I'm writing. Really? Yeah, I, want, I just decided I've got to do something. You know, I love challenges. I love challenging myself, so... Um, Life isn't challenging enough? Well, I think you can always add extra levels to it. It's like flavor in a dish. (laughs) You know, you could always add a little bit of something. And if you can't have something where you get up in the morning and go, how the hell am I going to do this? But you do it. Life kind of dies on you. But I I met my wife in Brazil, Mm -hmm. started coming over here to see her. And now between us, we keep traveling. I think this year it'll be over 70 countries by the time we finish and by the time I finish Fed White and Blue which I'm doing now which is my new book and TV show we'll do I'll have been to every state in the country Fed White and Blue? Yeah Oh okay I get it So yeah basically I'm I'm becoming one of you guys Mm Mm-hmm and I need to figure out what that means. Yeah, you do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you know what you're in for. Well, I'm actually writing the first chapter now. What is an American? And it can be anything. You know, it could be you know the the guy who makes my sushi, the guy who picks up my trash, the guy who does my dry cleaning, the the guy who cooks at the best French restaurant in the country. They could believe in God or not. They could believe in war or not. I mean, it, uh, the beauty of this country is that it will allow you to have those beliefs. And I got to do what I'm doing now on TV. And yes, people come up to me and they go, you're not a chef, you shouldn't be doing this. That's a different question. Do they really? Yeah. And I, they, you know, as I always said, there's a great saying, and I think it was Dr. Johnson who said, you don't need to be a carpenter to, ne- to tell when a table is crooked. Right, but also the the thing that you're trying to do, and I think it's noble, is that you know, even in talking about the food in Britain and even talking about hospitality is that Food, almost more than anything, uh, it binds us. 
and and the experience of sharing food and the experience of, of also like I imagine that you have information uh, for somebody who's been cooking something a certain way for their whole life because their grandmother taught them that way and they may think it's indigenously American or whatever and you're like no and you can provide a key to somebody to actually see where they come from where you know where you know their family lineage is, is how that could have gotten there you can if you trace food or traditions in food within families there might be some surprises there well i think one of the nice things is that you know when i when i do the show i yeah, i get a lot of hate tweets and i get all of that because yeah, i don't yeah no no i could care less about that that's just like but it's fun the key to me is that all the chefs i judge respect me oh you mean hate tweets for iron chef oh yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah that's just life but it's it's fun yeah um and i love responding back because it kind of freaks me well you all out. guys all you guys have sort of a yeah i even found that with scott and because like one of the things with conant was sort of like you know uh you know i, I would don't make me look like an asshole you know like he you know he like he knows how people take him and i i think it was important for when we talked you know for him to, to show you know who he was but you know you're on television so and there's a dynamic and I don't know that they push you to do that, but, you know, you're going to pick your angle. They absolutely don't push me to do it. But, but you know, I'm a well-spoken guy with an accent that sounds like a villain in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> so you've got to live with it. Yeah. I mean, of, so, of Play course, people go. And the moment you string two words together mm -hmm. in this country, there will be someone who thinks you're being yeah, elitist and yeah. hoity-toity and yeah. all of that. Yeah. You know, I get asked about it about the Iron Chefs. People go, oh, Bobby. Because Bobby comes over as tough and, you know, he's the Irish Play? kid. Yeah. And... And he's a New York kid. He's yeah. a New York yeah. Irish kid, you know. Yeah. Bo but Bo and of course, he's tough. You had to be. Yeah. But he's also one of the nicest guys I've met, and, and also one of the best chefs. Right. That's the thing with him is that you're like, who is this guy? Like, you know, with this attitude, and then he cooks. He's there's a sensitivity to it. Like when when I was talking to Conan, I had realized because I watched Chopped a lot, yeah. like, compulsively, and, <laughs> and and you know, and I watch Iron Chef and I watch Irvine show mostly. Those Rest three. those are the three that I watch the most. Right. Yeah, uh, and and like the one thing I realized before I talked to Conan was like, holy shit, he's the only one I haven't seen cook, and it and it bothered me because when you watch any of them cook, no matter what their attitude is, and, and all of them have a certain amount of attitude. There's an ego to the chef, yeah, and you get the personality of Jeffrey or or of uh, our own and you know Mark to a certain degree on Chop, but like I saw those guys cook, and the second you see someone cook, the vulnerability oh. is there. And and their connection with the food is there, and there's a whole other you know di you know a whole other element of their personality that you really can judge the sensitivity and who they really are, but by how they approach that food. Absolutely, and I remember I've eaten Bobby's food at his restaurant long yeah. before I ever did this. The first time I had his food on Iron Chef, I actually had to sit back for a few seconds. I was speechless. Luckily, they didn't come to me first. And I said to him afterwards, I said, I know this sounds silly. I said, but you're really good. I said, I don't mean that to be, you know, condescending. I said, I've eaten your food at Mesa and American Grill lots of times. I said, the first time just having you cook for me, it blew me away. And he, he clearly won that competition. I just said, you're really good. Yeah. And he kind of just smiled because I think he's used to people forgetting because he's so famous. Right. And also, he's got an attitude. That he's got an attitude that they forget that he's really good. The other one similar to that is Michael Simon. In fact, I've just got to phone him when we finish here to talk about something. And um, I laugh because he's got big banana hands for fingers. He's got that big Cleveland laugh. He's that cool yeah, yeah. you know, blue-collar guy. Yeah. And he cooks so, food with such finesse and such beauty and such thought that when you taste it, you're just knocked out. 
and it always surprises me. And every time I judge him, I go, I keep forgetting how good you are. Whereas there are there are others like Jeffrey, yeah, who, by the way, you should have on the show, yeah, has the filthiest sense of humor of any individual who ever walked Zaka- God's planet. Jeffrey Zakarian, absolutely, um, he is so funny. Yeah. He, his stories will kill you. He, I loved judging with him this year on uh-huh. Next Iron Chef uh-huh. or last year, uh-huh. now almost a year ago. He is so funny to judge with. And he will cut, and then he'll say, oh, let me tell you this story about someone right. famous. Uh-huh. And he just, you know, oh, yeah. the whole uh-huh. studio just stops to listen to these stories. So uh-huh. he's, he's, and he's become a, a good pal, and he's a, but you know he's a great chef. Just everything about him. Well, he's, he's like meticulous and, and also seems to you know, be very aware about honoring a certain tradition of cooking. Well, he's very much, as is Alex, out of this classical French tradition. Mm-hmm. And I'm a great believer in that because it's very technique-driven, and I think technique is one of the things that's disappearing now. I had, the, In fact, I had this long chat with Scott when I went to his restaurant, and he was there. And technique has almost become a sloppy... Uh, technique has almost become a dirty word. And everyone's going, well, I'm rustic, and I'm ingredient-driven. And rustic seems to have become a, a kind of euphemism for sloppy now. Or copying out. Or copying, and everything's a mess on the right, plate. Right, right. There's so much technique in what the really great chefs do. And if it's like to play to play jazz, you have to learn to play the piano first. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's what a lot of young chefs, I think, are beginning to lose. You can't riff unless you've got your yeah. technique in place. And I think there's... I go to a lot of restaurants now, and the basic techniques are missing. So what are even, those? Well, just, just little things of how flavors are married together. Um, just little things. I mean, not knife skills so much. But little things like so much food now is pre-prepped. You know, we live in a world of big ag. Yeah. You know, it's almost impossible for a lot of restaurants to get a whole side of, you know, beef or pork to break it down. Right. So they're buying it in all pre-portioned. Right. So they're losing that one more stage of connection. It's almost like the Karl Marx thing that we keep getting more and more removed from the means of production. That's right. And that's what's happening with food. So now you're getting these young chefs in, and I spoke to someone at the culinary school recently, and I said, well, uh, how long did you learn? Because you know, I can break down an animal. I said, how long did you spend doing that? And they said, a day. I said, what, you did a three-year course? You spent one day doing that? Breaking down a cow yeah. or a pig. Or a- I mean, I would. I mean, it's an expensive thing, which is one of the reasons, but also it's very hard because of the big ag systems that people have put in place. You, know, you can't to, get a whole. You can't get a whole animal because it's all broken down into boxes. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I was in Nebraska recently where, you know, some terrific beef came down. I followed a whole production from literally seeing a calf fall out of the back of its you know, its mum yeah. all the way to cooking steaks at the Nebraska club uh-huh. and all the points in between. Now, actually, what what came home is there's a lot of really good people and a lot of families and a lot of big farms that are run by just good people. But right. it's all done very with a lot of technology uh, because it's a production, 35,000 head a day. Sure. And, and I think that, you know, even though that it's a matter of connection to the heart and connection to the animal, because I noticed that when you have a, a restaurant, once the chef loses interest or leaves or, or sets up a menu and you're just left with underlings, that you, you don't there's the it, it, it naturally gets sloppy and the food sort of suffers from it because nobody's putting that that focus and love into it well it becomes a it's a vision right running a great restaurant is a vision and then i think like what you're saying you know just by nature of the fact that you know if you butcher your own animal and and it, the, i i don't know it's it, it almost seems like a, a a magical thing that you know like if everything's used or you know you've got the whole animal you break it down you make stocks you make whatever you're going to make with the rest of it which i think is a french yeah. idea yeah that you still feel that connection to that original animal if it was all taken apart in the kitchen that you're you're sitting in the restaurant of well it's it's a european uh perspective i think primarily i mean obviously lots of countries right. do this uh, but 
primarily Europe, you know, you had a lot of people who had one pig. Right. They kill that pig once a year. And we did this in the UK. You used everything but the squeak. Mm -hmm. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, Fergus Henderson nose to tail and this whole, whole awful tradition that's coming up. But people were used to eating it. Yeah. And nowadays we live in a world where people are allowed to be selective and f food became cheap. So they promote these ridiculous... My battle at the moment is trying stopping anyone in the US ever eating like chicken breast or pork tenderloin or filet mignon. They're all pieces of meat that have no flavor but they charge high prices for them. Right. Whereas if you use chicken thigh or you use pork shoulder or you use shoulder clod from a cow... Yeah, get some fat in there. Get the, some fat in it, the flavor. Yeah. You ask any chef, yeah. they'll tell you what they want to eat, and it's those bits. But we it, again, it's marketing, getting yeah. people into those. And we've lost contact. You know, so many kids in this country couldn't even tell you which animal different meats come from. Right. Yeah, you know, the fact that we give them a different name, pork and yeah. beef, not cow and pig. You know, so... or pig and cow rather but it's like the pork belly revolution it's like you know for years you know like that was used for soup and beans or to sort of stretch out something for poor people and now it's like you know it's the shit yeah absolutely you spend more on that in same in the uk um uh lamb breast is the next one you wait for it lamb breast veal breast these cheap beef belly uh -huh. all these cheap cuts uh -huh. the chefs love using them uh -huh. they also realize they can make a lot of money on them you buy you know, used to be able to buy a piece of pork belly for a few bucks, and then you cut it up, you could sell it for a lot more. Now, of course, it's become one of the most expensive parts of the animal. It's crazy, right? You know, I went to buy some. I make my own bacon at home, yeah. which is a very easy thing to do. Uh -huh. And I went to buy a slab of pork belly. Well, you know, it was just ludicrous. Really? You know, but but once you have that connection, yeah. you know, even do it with a fish. You know, uh -huh. how it's too few places now restaurants are filleting their own fish they're, they're buying it in pre-filleted fish is tricky because like so much of it is frozen so little of it is fresh and you don't know what you're getting i rarely order fish out i don't even know where to buy fish good fish you I'm, must get it by you where, where do you go in culver well, city I, no i in culver city you know what every sunday my wife and i go to the santa monica seafood company uh -huh. on wilshire uh -huh. you know walking distance to the beach uh -huh. we sit at the bar she has a lobster tail i have something you know the fish is good quality uh -huh. and 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 yeah, they they have fishermen because there because that's what they're doing. But I think it's you know. But I'll always buy a couple of whole fish from them to take home. And they go, "Do you want them filleted?" And I said, "No, just scale them." Right. That, that's a pain. Yeah. Uh, but I'll Messy. I'll I'll fill it them at yeah. home. Am I the best? Absolutely not. But I love the fact that I can take a whole trout. I can fillet it. I put it in my little smoker on my stovetop, and then I my wife loves when I make like a smoked trout pate. And also you have this dynamic going on with your wife and, and with whoever, like I used to cook a lot more and there's a certain pride in, in sharing food that you've cooked, not just on a hospitality level, but you're sort of like, huh, good. Yeah. Well, I did that and then we're enjoying it. Abso I mean. Absolutely. You know, or breaking down a chicken. Yeah. You know, I think it's five. If you buy pre-cut chicken pieces, yeah, it's five times more expensive than buying a chicken and breaking it up. Which is not hard. You just got to know where the joints are. You just... Do it a few times. Yeah. Now, yeah. the first time I broke down a chicken, you know, which wasn't that long ago, I hacked away at it like a medieval surgeon. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. you know, I kind of don't even look at it when I'm doing it. Uh -huh. And it's not because I'm, I'm extremely talented. It's just I've done it a lot of times. And that's one of the things when you see chefs on Iron Chef or anything... Yes, they're extremely talented. But, you know, they're, ha they're chopping away at a piece of garlic. And everyone goes, wow. 
they've done that a thousand times you know you and i haven't we yeah, can do yeah, it but yeah. you know i'm a lot slower and you it can see time, yeah i just did a demonstration the other day i've got a big hack on my thumb because you know i turned away well you know i could i was quite proud of that you know battle scar yeah i was actually doing a demonstration for about 50 people of some indian food and yeah. making all sorts of things that i took a lump out of my thumb um but these guys have been doing it forever. So when you, uh, like, all the other, how did you choose the country? So now you're, you're going around the states. Is that yeah. your deal? So you've um, gone state to state with stuff? I haven't done, I didn't want to do every state. Yeah. Because, A, I thought that would be just a bit kind of cheesy, but also because, best one in the world, some states aren't probably that exciting from a f- no, beautiful hard, state. Yeah, but yeah, hard to find, you know, in like real food, you know, like, or that, that somehow has some connection to this, to the state. Yeah. So rather than go and look for, you know, Dishes that are specific. I, I, the book's called Fed White and Blue, Breaking Bread with America. And it's mm-hmm. really me comp- looking for to break bread with the people who are Americans. Now, mm-hmm. that could be everything. I went and spent two days cooking in a Filipino kitchen in West Covina. Uh-huh. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to cook with the Seoul Sausage Boys, who are the guys who won the great food truck race. Uh-huh. And I'm actually going to, they want to put a sausage on their menu, a, a Port Vindaloo sausage so they've uh-huh. invited me to come in and make it for them huh uh, because obviously vindaloo a great indian where dish. is this place uh it's, it's on sortel in mississippi uh-huh they're the guys who won the great food truck race this year and they're terrific and they're such such good guys but korean americans so i'm going to go in and i spent a night with them hanging out in k-town and now i'm going to cook with them and that finding out about the kind of young korean american community i was in nebraska i was in texacana this was actually one of the most kind of tragic but also inspiring um, I went to spend a week working with one of the food pantries mm-hmm. in Texarkana, mm-hmm. where they have one of the biggest problems of hunger in the country. And part of it is the politics because it's half Texas, half Arkansas, and they hate each other yeah. and can't get on and nobody seems to care. But they just have a real poverty issue there. But they also have these incredibly inspiring people in the middle, whether it's who, people who are running a church, people running this pantry, or even the people at Walmart who are giving them a lot of the food that would otherwise go to waste. Uh-huh. And bear in mind, 35% of the food in this country goes in, it's fucking, in the trash. It's a tragedy. It's, it, people should be in jail. Yeah, People I agree. should be in jail yeah. because of this. Because I hate it when I go to restaurants. I'm like, where's all this going? Well, I mean, tomorrow. The, the portions are so crazy. And... You go and see so much of it. They're not. You go to a chain restaurant, and so much of it is being thrown out because they're being told by head office or by the law that they can't give it away. Now mm-hmm. some some are, are giving it, but so much gets wasted, and that's what drives me crazy. That you could go to a restaurant where the dumpster is full of food that is perfectly fine, and a hundred yards away, there's someone starving on the street. Yeah, it's it's. It, in, uh, I've I actually did a segment on a show with uh, Freegans. Oh yeah. Yeah, who who actually have relationships with some stores or know where to go to get food. I've done that in London. Yeah, people who just don't pay for anything. They go to the dumpster. Yeah, because it's like just because the date says bad, it doesn't mean it's bad. No, it could be one day. Yeah. So I spent some time up there. You know, I'm going down to... What would you uh, get into over there? Everything I did from collecting food to bring to the pantry, from the people who come into the pantry to take it, uh, to the food bank rather, Uh then the people who come in and take it to their little food pantries that are in churches. Then I went to help in some churches loading the bags and this is when i get really annoyed when you read about people going oh well entitlement and they're all they're all no the welfare state people yeah they're all welfare state they're all just got their hands out and i was saying you know when i was carrying these bags for the often i was helping carrying bags because a lot of them are seniors who are making that choice of do i buy food or pay for my medication right so i was helping them carry it out to their car i didn't take them out to too many lexus cars or too many bmws or audis you know a battered old datsun maybe yeah so these are people who are really suffering and a lot of them are, are just 
people helping, not for any praise or glory. They're just helping because they're in a community and they want it. So it was... It, and that's what people were supposed to do. Help each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never understand <laughs> that. But the, the outrage that I felt when I saw all of this going on, but just how humble it made me feel that there were... There were these people who were just helping out. Yeah. Um, so I did that. I went up to Seattle to make a fed white and blue beer. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm, I said I'm going to go and make some whiskey in Utah, part of this big craft distilling. I'm off to the cheese. American there's some, cheese. There's some uh, whiskey being made in Utah? Well, there's a, a company called High West Distillery. makes some of the best craft, brews, uh, craft spirits in the country. Uh, and that's a growing industry now. There's what, a, the, what does the word craft mean? Well, craft is kind of boutique, small scale. Well, that seems to be happening a lot. And I still wonder about, like, you know, I know that it, it's very interesting because of the foodie revolution that in almost any, even minor or, you know, smaller city in America, there might be a chef that's doing something very exciting and compelling. But it's still a uh, fairly, um, uh, it's insulated and it's, it's expensive. It's also, they're battling against the chains. And the chains, I think I read somewhere, it's Mississippi, for example, mm-hmm. something like 60 or 70% of the meals are eaten in a chain restaurant. Mm-hmm. And those chains are very attractive for employees because they have benefits. Yeah, they're operating. But it's also cheap and easy for people. Like I have a, a, a weird sort of aggravation with, uh, with, with the fact that in this country anyways, to get good food, I mean, just produce, you, you have to have money. And that, you know, in that there's this talk, it's like, why don't people eat healthier? Well, you can eat healthier, but you're still going to be eating, you know, agribusiness crap uh, because you, you don't have the financial access or the uh, economics to, to go out and buy good, healthy food. Well, we use food in this country, I have to say, it's often used as a way of beating each other up. Mm-hmm. Kind of from a, this is almost a class thing. Oh, well, if you don't go to the farmer's market, you're not a good person. Well, you know, try telling someone with two jobs. Trying to two look at two ki- jobs, two kids, s- single exactly. mom. Exactly, it is class. We don't talk about class yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that if she doesn't buy her parsnips from the farmers market, she's a b- big, uh, you know, she's a bad person. How dare you? Right. How dare you tell her? Yeah. Just because you know you drive in an SUV and you you haven't, you know, you're and you've got money and, and you've you don't got work money and, and you don't work or you <laughs> yeah. know and you've sure. got lots of spare time. Sure. So how dare you? Yeah. And the criticism of supermarkets. Yeah. I love supermarkets. I, go, and I, my, my, I have three or four supermarkets yeah. I go to for certain things. Absolutely. I could spend the day doing that. Uh, but my view is yeah. let's work with the supermarkets so that what they have is as good as possible. Right. And all I ever say with food is do as well as you can with the budget you have and the time that you have. Mm-hmm. And then no one should be able to criticize you. Yeah. And, and as long as you're intellect that sounds it sounds too posh but intellectually curious as long as you're constantly going well what could i do better yeah and i'm always doing that okay and that part of it's my job i you know i get paid to go well let me order a half a cow on on online and see what i can play around with at home or you know i had to go out and buy a blender the other day and i could that's that's the equipment for me it's the tools of my trade it's like your radio equipment here you know that's tax deductible i'm very lucky from that point of view and i do have I'll say I have the best job in the world. Yeah. I get to travel around the world. I get to eat amazing food. I get people inviting me to come and eat amazing food. And every now and again, when I'm lucky, I get to do it on TV and tell people what I think about it. And write about it. And write about it. So, you know, from that point of view, I know I hate to use the word blessed, but I do use it. I'm very blessed. And when outside, okay, so we have the Texarkana experience. You have the experience on the train, and then you were able to trace uh, uh, clotted cream uh, you, you know, in your travels, what was the most profound moment that you you know you had you know uh, in terms of of sitting and eating? 
Well, I mean, not just sitting and eating. There was a moment when I was on uh, that really kind of brought it home to me where I sort of literally burst into tears and cried and I was standing on the Great Wall of China and I was on a particularly kind of rough part of the Great Wall of China. You have the very tourist part that they redeveloped and restored and it's beautiful. But if you drive a few hours in, you know, it's just falling apart and you've basically got to be almost a rock climber to go around it. And I stood on there and I was on my own. I was with a couple of people, but we kind of walked off in other directions. And I, uh, thousands of miles of yeah. Great Wall of China. It's amazing, yeah. And uh, I re- this is one of the things my mother had always wanted to do, mm-hmm. and she didn't. And I stood there and it kind of hit me what I'd, what I'd achieved. I was halfway through the journey, mm. what I was risking because I had no idea what was ahead, and what I was doing to kind of honor my mother. And I, I, I had like 45 minutes of solid tears. So that was a very profound moment. The other one was in Finland, of all places. Yeah. And I was invited up to the north of Finland, and I ended up in this little cottage uh, with this woman called the Princessa uh-huh. and her husband, Perti, and they were in their 70s. And yeah. They made me a meal, and every single thing they served was either grown on their land or hunted on their land or fished on in a little pond there. And it was the most exquisite meal I can even remember. Uh, I can ever remember. And they brought out a little dish of tiny little potatoes, uh-huh. you know, about as you know, big, big as a kind of nickel. Uh-huh. And they were s- no butter, no salt, nothing on them. And they were so sweet. Huh. They were so just perfect expressions of the potato. Uh-huh. Everything you want a potato yeah. taste. And I ate about a hundred of these things <laughs> while they watched me kind of cooing in pleasure at, at uh, uh, the joy I was getting yeah. from the food they'd grown. Yeah. And that, to me, was what food is about. Now, I'm experiencing that. You know, my wife and I are off to New Zealand later in the year. Then we're off to Nepal. Then we're off to Chile. Then I'm going back to Spain to finish writing the new book. And and to me, as long as I can keep doing it, as long as my body allows me and my bank balance allows me, then my wife and I are going to do this till the day we drop dead. It sounds like what you're supposed to do. Well, I, I, yeah, I can't even remember who said it, and it is one of those slightly woo-woo things about following your bliss. Yeah. But I found mine, and yeah. I found a, a blissful woman to do it with. Yeah. And, and I'll carry on doing it. And Iron Chef has been great because it's facilitated a lot of things. People see me on the show. Uh-huh. I think they're surprised when I can cook. Like I said, I get a lot of I get people going, uh, if I ever see in the street, I want to punch you in the face. And I always go, well, come and find me. You yeah, know, come and find yeah, me. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm, let's I'm, eat. But let's eat first. Yeah, I said, I said, I'm from a northern town in England. We'll have a, we'll have a good fight, and then I'll buy you a pint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and then they kind of cheer up a bit. Yeah. And as long as they, they, but as long as people respect that I know what I'm talking about, I love the history of food. I love people who prepare food, grow it, you know, and do it well and care about it. Um, then I think I'm always going to have a good time. Well, good, man. Well, thanks for talking to me, Simon. Well, I'm so uh, pleased to be invited. Given who you've had on this show, I feel a bit, I feel a bit kind of worthless. I was, but I'm, but it's no. been, it's been phenomenal. I'm glad you're a fan. It was a real honor, and I, you know, and it's, uh, I'm excited to read the book, and 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 I'm, uh, I'm happy for you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. That's it. That's our show, folks. I, th- I hope you found that enjoyable. I, I, I've never spoken to a food critic, and now I, I have. And uh, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm going to do a little of that now. A little food criticism. It's interesting, you know, with all this foodie culture and that there, everywhere there's foodies, everywhere there's great restaurants, there's great chefs, and we're all very heightened in our understanding of food and our appreciation of it, that you have to realize that most really high-end food is not particularly good for you. 
Uh, and just because there's there's a whole new foodie culture and there's all these great restaurants around doesn't mean you can eat pork belly three times a week. Doesn't mean that you need all that butter. Doesn't mean that you know those desserts are you get a free pass just because it's high end merch. You dig? I think you know what I'm saying. I'm 50 years old. You know I can't be. You know pork belly's a treat, not a habit. You get what I'm saying? All I'm saying is you hear a lot about the great chefs. But you don't hear much about their victims. You dig? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Uh, you know, pick up some merch. Got the t-shirts there. The MTV Rift shirts are there. And uh, going to get some new merch up there soon. Uh, get the app. The app is the greatest way to get all of the episodes. It's the only way, really, if you want to do it fairly. You can get the free WTF app at wherever you get apps. And upgrade for like seven or eight bucks and get that premium. You can stream all of them. Obviously, the most fifty are the the most recent fifty are always free. Justcoffee.coop at wtfpod.com. Get the WTF blend and get a little on the back end for that. All right, I'm okay. Appreciate the love and thank you for uh, for being there for me, folks. You and the cats. That's where we're at right now. Boomer lives. <laughs> <laughs>